Hello, friends, and welcome to Animates. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And today we are going to be discussing uh, perhaps our first Netflix original series, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. And boy, truly, what an adventure it will be. I do... <laughs> I do have to say we're laughing because something I've noticed with a lot of shows is that we don't have a ton to say because it's usually good or usually pretty unoffensive. It's unremarkable, you know. And this is a case where there there's a lot to talk about because like yes. there, there, there's some good stuff, but there's also some problems. I just like to like say a disclaimer for anyone before we get started that like I did think this show was very entertaining. I was entertained and enjoyed myself while I watched this show, and the art style is cute. So just I'd like to say that I'd like to put that out there. There's some good things that I have to say. There's some praise, you know. I agree as well. I, I'm not trying to make it sound like there's... It has no redeeming qualities or anything. That's not the case. Exactly. There there are good things about the show, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I clearly made it all the way through the end. But it, yeah. I think in, in Renaissance terms, it's the difference between baking like the perfect showstopper cake and baking one that's like, you know, it's good. It's a little overbaked. <laughs> it's overworked. Overworked and overbaked. Um, I would say this one really more would be like, it's underproved. Yes. <laughs> perfect example. For those of you who don't know what we're referencing, we're referencing Paul Hollywood, Hollywood. on the great, great British baking show. Oh my gosh. Okay. So just a little background, just some of the technical info about this show. Um, so this was it premiered on Netflix on the 13th of November, 2018, and the fifth and final season came out on the 15th of May, 2020. So they made and released five seasons of this show in 18 months, which I think might explain some of the issues. <laughs> that is an extremely rapid production schedule for anything especially animation and it's not like they were all six episode seasons there were one or two seasons in there that were eight episodes but most of the seasons were 13 episodes i okay i assume what happened is is that uh the show was created by no nd stevenson so noel stevenson and this show was envisioned as a 52 episode complete series. So I think what they must have done is they must have produced it front to back. Okay. Completely, which, which is not unheard of in like serialized anime, for example. So Mm -hmm. it is a lot. It is a lot for what, what we typically see in Western animation. But I think, I I think if you assume they broke the seat, like they kind of did what Peter Jackson did with Lord of the Rings. It it makes a little bit more sense. It's, it still kind of can explain some of the problems that popped up because it's still like a lot to do in a very short amount of time. Yeah. But I I do think that it is not as extreme perhaps as it first appears. 
Yes. Okay. So Noelle Stevenson, I actually got her mixed up with Natasha Allegri one time, but Noelle Stevenson, funnily enough, um, I don't know, you said ND, so I don't know if that person's gender identity has changed, but up until now, I've always known um, that person to be a woman and to go by she, her. So that's what I'm going to stick with until I know for sure otherwise. Um, So I actually followed her on Tumblr many years ago in like 2011 when I first got on Tumblr I followed her and that was before she um had ever done anything that was before she even did Nimona um I just followed her on Tumblr as like a person who did like cute art and stuff and then she made Nimona which was an indie comic uh like fantasy comic and then she did a lot of work on uh Lumberjanes which was another indie comic, but that she didn't create. Um, And I can't recall, I don't think she's worked on any other like TV animation projects. Um, But then she adapted this series for television uh, by, um, from uh, the 80s series, She-Ra, the Princess of Power, which was a spinoff of He-Man, which was a show made by Mattel to sell toys to children. So that's the source material for this. Yeah. So it, uh, they do, they, they are stated as being non-binary and do go by they and had changed their, like officially changed their first name to ND, the letters okay. N and D. Oh. So that is, yeah. So, um, Andy Stevenson uh, definitely has focused a lot on gender issues in particular in their work. And this is very apparent in She-Ra. I, I, I think it's a little less overt. It, it's, it's interesting how that is addressed here. And we have many things to say about it. But it is important to note that representation matters is a core thesis of the show yeah the when you when you click on it on netflix it says like underneath the title but before like the synopsis representation matters collection so that's the thing (laughs) okay this just it man I, i don't know why but right now the the stark contrast of this company saying representation matters is making me feel all sorts of weird i know i just like the fact that like like i'd really like can i like is represent is the representation matters collection searchable can i see like what else is in the representation matters collection i don't know probably like pose sense sense eight sense eight is a great show i will brook no criticism of Sense. oh no that wasn't a criticism i was just okay. thinking about what would be in that collection oh sure sure yeah no i love sense eight <laughs> uh, i i think okay so other aspects of the show um uh, okay this is okay i think it's interesting that netflix presents a, a very serious departure from a lot of what we've talked about in the past because We've talked a lot about how studios seem to have insider tracks. Like, they're, like for example, we've talked a lot about the Cartoon Network pipeline of, like, stretching all the way back to, oh my god, I'm committing a cardinal sin for getting the dude who made Powerpuff Girls. Oh, uh, 
Gendy? Craig McCracken. Oh, Craig McCracken. You're thinking of Gendy Tartarovsky who made uh, Dexter's Lab. Right. So I, I think we're thinking of like, like just a lot of people were spawned from their creative loins. Yeah. Which is yeah. probably one of the grossest things I've ever said, but there it is. <laughs> uh, just like... Uh, uh, Pendleton Ward. So, so like yeah, there's in the creative lineages, they're like the great great grandpappies, you know. <laughs> but the introduction of streaming services, I think, may prove to be disruptive to that approach. Um, for example, I'm looking at the voice actor list, and I don't see hardly anybody that I recognize. I didn't recognize any of those voices at all. I haven't even taken a chance to look at the cast yet. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's possible this is a DreamWorks production, so it's possible these are DreamWorks insiders. People. We just haven't done a lot of DreamWorks properties, so I have no way to know. Mm -hmm. But the voice acting cast is pretty uh, fresh for my ears. And generally, they give good performances. None of my... I don't think any of my criticisms will come down to voice acting quality. Yeah, no, the voice acting quality was perfectly fine. I can't even find the cast list. Where is it? Good God. Voices of Amy Carrero. Amy Carrero might, she sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. I'm going to look her up while you give the other names. Um, AJ Michalka. Sorry for mispronouncing that. Oh, AJ Michalka. She's the blonde chick from Phil of the Future. I never watched that show. Oh, my God. She's like a Disney lady. You know, Allie and AJ, she and her sister both have that. They have that weird little band and they were both like on Disney a lot. Interesting. OK, OK, OK. Yeah. Karen Fukuhara, which she's not at, like it's weird because she's just a, like a regular actress. Hmm. Not to make it like the lineage. Well, so is AJ, Mach AJ Machalka. Like Karen Fukuhara is in like Suicide Squad. Uh in the boys which is good um she's glimmer so I, maybe that's what is happening is that they're just having people who don't do voice acting primarily do voice acting okay that's something i have like a real distaste for actually um amy carrero is a voice actor um she also does a disney channel series um elena of avalar but like i i i'm sorry i i mostly dislike this when they do it with bigger name actors so it's not as big of a deal here but when they make an animated feature and they cast like a-list live action actors for the voice cast when it's like they're are dozens of very talented voice actors who could really get a lot of recognition and pay from being in this feature and like, the, I don't know, because it's like the, it's like voice acting is like this like weird second class, you know, of the acting community where like like there are very, very talented people like, you know, we've talked before about how people who don't like animation think that Mark Hamill has had a really disappointing career when actually he's like a God tier voice actor, you know, and I'm just like, I'm like, why just just cast people who are voice actors, damn it. Yeah, so uh Marcus Scribner, who plays Bo and many other side characters, is from the sit like he he is on the ABC sitcom Blackish. So again, a an actor, like a like a life like a physical actor as opposed to a voice actor. Uh, 
Lauren Ash is someone I recognize from the show Superstore, which I've watched entirely. She's great. Um, she's arguably one of the better parts of that show. She plays Scorpia and, and does a really great job. Now, she's Tabes. Like, I immediately, like, recognized her as Tabes from We Bear Bears. Yeah, so she, she I think she does just, like, a lot of different stuff. So that Yes, yes. Um, I also found her character to be very reminiscent of Tabes. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm looking at all the, the voice actors. I think what Netflix is doing is they're just like, oh, you're an actor? Come do voice acting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. I don't, I don't love that um, because, like, I think the voice acting quality was perfectly fine. But I do think that, and it's obviously not the same as when, like, a feature-length film casts Robert Downey Jr. to, you know, be a voice actor instead of, like, an experienced voice actor. But I do think, like, voice acting is a different kind of skill than screen acting. And um, you can... I don't know. It's just like there are people who are experienced in that field, you know, specifically and talented in that field specifically. And you will sometimes get better results if you look to cast people where that's their expertise instead of trying to get like name recognition. And also it seems like like secondary like secondhand clout from another show that's known for being a representation matters show oh that's true yeah that's true yeah i didn't even think about that oh a guy from blackish is attached you know it's gonna be woke because a guy from blackish is attached um so so yeah okay that you know that that makes some sense and i i i definitely Okay. Okay. So we should be on the lookout for that if we ever do another Netflix show. Is Definitely. is just how Definitely. they are disrupting the paradigm. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Vom. I just vomed a little <laughs> bit in my mouth. Um. Okay. So this show has a couple of main characters. Not to sort of belabor the point, but if you've seen the original Shira at all, they use very like they 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 use that a lot of the characters from the original show. So Adora, who's the main character, who's a princess of power. Um, there is, she does the honor of Grayskull shit that he, it feels really weird to have this world detached from He-Man. It does, like, because it feels really weird because she always says the honor of Grayskull and they never, like, discuss. What the fuck Grayskull, Grayskull is? Like, that really bothered me. Like, <laughs> they try and do some like I said before we got on and it's something we'll probably get into a little bit later but it's like they picked up a lore baton and ran like two thirds of the way to the finish line then stopped dropped the lore baton on the ground and fell down on the ground and started writhing for absolutely no reason at all um, and like one of the reasons is like they never made any attempt to like do any kind of explanation of what the fuck Grayskull is in their lore. It's like she says it 30 times an episode. You're never going to like explain what this is. Come on. Yeah. And even if it's some kind of passcode, there's got to be a re like, I don't know. It's it's just <sighs> so that's a huge issue. But I, I you know, it's I. Okay, there's some other issues we'll talk about with, like, the representation angle, um, hashtag 
tender queer. <laughs> but detaching this show from anything related to He-Man, I, I get it, but it does feel weird. Like it feels it it feels like there should be other stuff and it's just it gone. Does. And it's like they brought in a lot of stuff about like interdimensional portals and shit like that pretty early on. And like you couldn't bring in He-Man for 30 seconds. Like you couldn't do a brief He-Man appearance to try and like give us a little bit of explanation. Come on. I mean, I know it's for kids, but still. They never fucking. Okay. No, okay. I'm. <sighs> There's something that happens in the last two episodes that bugs the absolute ever-loving shit out of me, and I'm going to let it sit until we get to it. Okay. Um, but, so Adora is flanked by the princesses that form the main ensemble. Glimmer, which is, there was a glimmer in the original show, too. She teleports and is glittery. Yeah. Uh, she's... sparkles. God, she's a hot mess. Um... <laughs> <laughs> There's Perfuma. <laughs> Sorry, that name is just so freaking on the nose. So bad. Oh, Perfuma, God. who's the plant princess. Flower. She's a she's a hippie. She's what hippies yeah. think hippies are. Yeah, I like I did like what they did with her with making her very like crunchy granola, you know? <laughs> crunchy crunchy granola. Holy shit. Um there's Mermist. <laughs> I'm just saying these names out loud. Just, I it's really... not the fault of anyone who worked on this show. It's the fault of the Mattel executives from the 80s. Um, the names are ridiculous. Um, though I will say Mermist is my favorite. She's her voice actor. I can't ever remember her name, but Heather from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She should have. No, she should have been voiced by Aubrey Plaza. We both know it. Oh, well, like, Heather from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is the Aubrey Plaza of this decade. Anything that would have been Aubrey Plaza 10 years ago is her now. I... Can, can you delete that sentence from my memory? Just, from my I'm memory banks? I'm just telling banks? you the truth of what I'm noticing in casting. <laughs> please, please don't say what Aubrey Plaza would have been in 10 years ago. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> with that statement right now. Oh uh, my gosh. So she, she, you know, very deadpan, to, very mm -hmm. tsundere. Um, uh, there is Spinarella, who's a wind princess. And who am I missing? Oh, I, oh my. Netasa? Net Tossa? <laughs> Netasa throws nets. She makes nets. Um, then there's the little one. Um, the ice one. Frosta. Frosta. Um, and I want to say... Those are those are the princesses. Oh, Entrapta. Entrapta's also a princess. Yeah, but she's... Like, they say she's a princess, but she never does magic. She's not actually a princess in Ethereum terms. Like, there's the princess political position, and then there's the princess, how do they fit into the balance of the planet? Yeah. So the only the only princesses that are true princesses are Glimmer, Spinnerella, Mermista, Frosta, and Perfuma, and then Natasha, I think. Well, no, no, Natasa. nope, and then Shira. Yeah, yeah. So these are uh, a Scorpia is also a princess, but we don't find that out till later. Uh, so we've got this this cast of princesses. There's also 
the the you know the side enemy frenemy characters. So there's Katra, there is Hordak, who is the the big bad of the first run of the like the 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 initial begin the first like three seasons. Yeah. There's Shadow uh, Weaver. Shadow Weaver, who is one of the only interesting characters on the show. Very complex, yeah. Um, Scorpia. Yeah, Scorpia is in the Horde. The Horde is like the enemy faction. Yeah, the bad guys. Oh, I have another interesting character to add to our list. Madame Raz. Oh, Madame Raz. Yeah, they don't use her a ton. Um, She's a bigger deal in the original series, but Madame Raz is cool. She was the only character to make me cry. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. I had feelings about, like, the most deep and true emotion I experienced while watching this show was Madame Raz related. Yes. As well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Mara's okay. Like, she's, you know, she's got the whole I'm dead, look at me thing going on <laughs> um and then there's like another like super important main character is Bo, not b-a not b-e-a-u but b-o-w Bo. he is an archer he literally is just his weapon which if you think about the if you think about that for any amount of time is weird and fucked up but yeah um Ugh. so uh we also have glimmer's mom angelica <laughs> No, just Angela. Angela, who has wings and is immortal. And, the, you know, there's some characters that get introduced later on, like Glimmer's dad we thought was dead, and he comes back. He's pretty cool, but then he gets mind-controlled like a chump. Um, yeah. There's Seahawk. He's a good time. Seahawk is the comic... His boy toy. He's Yeah, he's the himbo. <laughs> comic yeah. relief uh he's as okay no he's as close to a himbo as the show would allow yes and i say that because uh, okay we're gonna not get to that yet the show has a thing with sexuality yes um yes so and yeah. masculinity yeah <laughs> so, so we've got we've got this cast of characters and they all kind of ebb and flow. They kind of eschew semi-traditional structure by, you know, enemies become friends, friends kind of become enemies for a while. And then they come like it, it all kind of blends together eventually until the very end where it's like everybody versus the biggest, biggest bad. It's, you know, it's happened before frenemies and such, but this the show really goes hard with our allegiance is to our feelings first. And then, yes. you know, political whatever just kind of follows that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I would say, like, something weird about this show is that, like... Like, I don't know. I don't know. Do you want to talk about the, like, the internal politics of the show? All right. Like, so before before I do that, just note, um, bit huge spoilers, obviously, if you care. Um, the first part of the show is the forces of Etheria versus the Horde, which is like an invading grim, dark tech, quote unquote, society. It's like very nature versus tech. Yeah. And, and Hordak is the main enemy. His his goals is personality are, are, are obfuscated a ton we're not really sure why he's doing what he's doing um 
Adora left the horde, and Catra gets fucked up by it for really complicated, but also not complicated reasons. And it's kind of like Adora versus Catra. Adora becomes She-Ra and unites everybody against Hordak, and that's kind of like the conflict center of the show at the beginning. And then at the end, we find out that Etheria is in a pocket dimension and actually Hordak Prime is the true enemy who's literally conquered the whole universe except for, like, Etheria. And it's the final battle, and he's terrible, and it's kind of everybody versus him. So that's the second arc of the show. So you, you'd think the conflict, the battle lines are pretty clear, right? Like, on Etheria, Hordak is literally genociding in ecociding places. And in the second half, Hordak Prime is destroying the universe. Or trying to conquer it? Question mark? It's very unclear. So we've got this... <laughs> okay. I think before we get into the internal politics of the show, we have to talk about the tender queer part first. Because I think because okay. I think the internal politic issues stem partially from dedication to uh, I, I, I really hate to say this dedication to an ideological component first and story yes. second. Yes, I completely agree, because something I like. It's like I texted you very early on in watching this show and I was like, an issue that this show is bringing up for me is like tender queer. Has it gone too far? And okay, just like, I, I don't know why this has to be prefaced. I'm a big old gamo. I'm and, bi, so yeah. we're both queer people. It, like, not that doesn't make us a definitive authority on any of this stuff, but we're not just navel gazing like about these issues you like you can't accuse us of being homophobic because we have problems with this aesthetic <laughs> like and and <laughs> that feels fair it feels like we're gonna shit on it and it's really not like the representation matters is good to me because it does like psychologically we know that when people have exemplars and when people even just like through the mere exposure effect just seeing something more leads people to like it more. We know that representation through many different mechanisms has positive psychological outcomes for the people being represented and can reduce stereotypes and prejudice. That's That's been studied to some extent. So it's not that that idea has no merit. Um, the issue comes when how how far <laughs> how far do you go when you're constructing a narrative to make that a thing? And I think yeah. the the reason that I'm asking that question is is a leading question because I think the show does it with a freaking meat mallet. Yes. So I think there's this weird thing, especially among, like, queer Zoomers on Twitter. <laughs> oh, my God. 
sorry. That that just conjures such an immediate image. And it's like it's like okay, they've had like they're. 16 and so the last 10 years they've had so much of this like tender queer aesthetic you know to like imbibe and a lot of that aesthetic was a reaction to this idea that queerness is inherently sexual or all about sexuality or about sexual deviance or has to be dark or about bad emotions and things like that. So this sort of aesthetic and, and, and thing you see in Steven Universe of like queer people are allowed to be like soft and have loving relationships and have feelings and it doesn't have to be about sexuality. It can be about love and things like that. It was a reaction to that. But I don't think that a lot of these young people have experienced like understand that because they haven't experienced it. And so there's this weird like anti-sex league thing going on with some of them where they're like like don't bring your like i'm a literal child and i want to be at pride and i don't think that you should like leather people should be allowed at like the leather community should be allowed at pride because like i'm a literal 17 year old child and i don't want that to be near me there's this like weird like anti-sexuality thing and i think that this show is part and parcel of that penja like it's often remarked in cultural shifts that it's a pendulum, right? Yes. That it's like the pendulum theory. And I think what's interesting is that that can occur at various levels of analysis. And this one to me occurs like not so much on a huge cultural level, but like within a subculture. Yes. Yes. And and I think that's kind of what's happened. And, I, you know, what's interesting to me is that it, it seems to be happening in a number of other areas. So one I, I've remarked to my one of my old advisors who kind of like has studied or, or is interested in like studying drug use that drug use seems to be one of those things that's pendulumed for a lot of like younger subcultures that's um, interesting. They're all straight edge now. Yeah. Or or like very not straight edge per se, but you know, a lot of them are 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 less exploratory, we'll call it. Um sure. in the queer subculture, I think like just uh, like the history of queer liberation or I guess I should say this from my perspective of like gay liberation in particular has been very sex focused, but in like a reclaiming sort of way. Yes. Like transgressiveness was resistance so when you look at when you look at like drawings from this i'm I'm thinking of like those oh my god what is it um my gosh i'm blanking old pinups that were like dudes were too beefy (laughs) sort of thing yeah or like what's that photographer you know with all the shiny naked men tom of was it tom of finland who did the drawings i think it was see i'm i'm a bad you know historical gay for not knowing this stuff off the top of my head but there was like a huge focus on sexuality and i think what we're sort of seeing is a generation say we don't want it to be about sex um and want it to be about other stuff. Um, yeah. And, and I think this is just sort of like a broader conversation occurring amongst different queer communities. And I say that because like what 
gay men are going to talk about is going to be different than people who are very focused on gender issues, which is going to be different than, you know, what cis lesbians want to talk about. So to some extent, that conversation is, you know, good and normal and expected to happen. But this show definitely takes the cake on being like at one of the pendulum ends. I absolutely agree, because I think that across these different parts of the queer community, you get the tender queer aesthetic. And this show goes like whole hog into that. And what what we mean by that is, I don't know, would you like to define tender queer? I mean, I you were the one who first used the term in a way that I like I'd heard it before, but it evokes images of like soft, the, the word soft pastel gentle emotional those are kind of like all the things that i think about it's like it's like a stuffed animal yeah it's like okay like steven universe is tender queer it is um and like maybe in a way that's not necessarily as negative but it's like yes it's like this soft very emotion focused um very platonic very sparkly you know um and in some ways very self-infantilizing um and very there are times where it can turn into a sort of weird moral conservatism especially around sexuality uh and i think that that's what we have going on in this show yeah it it, it's one of those things that it, it removes from its aesthetic at least as i've like maybe this is just because we're talking about cartoons but there is a pretty strict removal of traditionally masculine qualities. And yes. that's this not... This whole show is female tendencies. And, and that's not... I'm, I'm not even talking, like, things that people talk about as being negative. I'm talking about, like, body hair. I'm talking yeah. about, mu- like, muscles. Mm-hmm. Just, like, the existence yeah. of defined muscles. But also the weird part about this, and Paige and I have talked about this, is that it's not the removal of things that are kind of, or or smoothing. The smoothing over of things that connote sexuality is not restricted to the masculine sphere. Yes, yes. So I understand that in the original 80s program, everyone was very sexy. Voluptuous. And that's kind of weird because it was a show that was marketed to little girls. So, like, why did they need to be so sexy? I get that there's a reaction to that and a conscious decision to push back. But there are so many situations in this show where anatomically there should be tits and there aren't any. (laughs) (laughs) We both independently noticed this. Yes. Um, Okay. Uh, The horde uniforms have tit windows and there's no cleavage in them. What is happening with these women's chests? But okay, the weird part is you're like, okay, well maybe they're just trying to like really represent like flatter chests. No, because in silhouette, yes, people they have, boobs. have okay, they have boobs but they're also still smoothed over. And you notice it the most when they are wearing form-fitting gowns and dresses. They, yes. they, they, like, it's like they're tight, 
but there is no texture on the chest yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it, like, that's not how bodies are. So, so flat chest and Look, big. Even Spinner Spinnerella is like a big chubby girl with great big tits, but you can only see them from the sides. It's crazy. It, it and like everybody's got big hips. Everybody. Yeah. Except okay, except for Perfuma. Perfuma is yeah, the exception. Like, uh, very. She's like uh, built like a two by four. So so it's like you got a lot of smoothed over chests and big hips, and it's okay. My issue is not with that. It's like, but it's it's like somebody said this is the uniform. <laughs> like the, yeah. Make make them curvy without being sexual at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like, well, representation matters and a real woman, like, like most women have like more fat on their bones or whatever. And so they look curvy, but like the parts about that, that can be sexy, they can't have, which is like as someone like as a very busty woman, that's something that's always really pissed me off. It's like my, like my boobs aren't inherently sexual, you know, like the fact that I have boobs that you can see when I wear clothes isn't like sexual. You don't have have to like it it doesn't have to be sexualized to show that you've portrayed women and that they have boobs and that you can see them you know it it, it feels like like it just it just feel it kind of feels like a smothering like a like a uniform smothering that produces these really weird things like again the tit window thing i think is the the biggest like what the fuck just like what the fuck guys mm-hmm. <laughs> um and and to some extent, like some of these people are younger. I mean, when Glimmer is essentially prepubescent, it it really kind of makes sense. But the show progresses to where these people are going through or have gone through puberty. Yes. And so, yes. I, I, is the, the message- only person whose body changes is Glimmer really because her body looks really, her body looks very weird at the beginning of the show, but then you realize that she's the only person who like her body changes and she like kind of slims down a little and you're like, oh, I guess she was prepubescent, I guess. But like everybody else, I'm like, okay, so like, where are they age wise? What's going on with their bodies? So it just, it, I don't know if the message we want to be sending is that like having secondary sexual characteristics means you have to be sexualized. Yeah. I don't, that does not feel like the right direction. And that's the direction that they chose to go in. N- never mind the men, too. Like, Bo's underarms are exposed all the time and he doesn't have any armpit hair. Does he shave? <laughs> <laughs> and and Seahawk is a grown man. Yeah. Like, he's at least 20. He has a mustache. He has a mustache, but he has no, he's, okay, the silhouette is built like he should have muscle. His shoulders are broad and he's got mass, but nothing is defined on him and it drives my brain nuts. The only muscle definition or anything that you could argue is even slightly sexualized in this show is um, Bo's midriff is always exposed. Um, They make like a big joke out of it. And he has two little dash marks on his belly that indicate the presence of abs. 
and they go so far to emphasize the ab window um that they create a spacesuit for because him space that has an ab window his spacesuit has an ab window guys it's really funny <laughs> i i can't tell if they I, like, paused the show and ran into the other room to tell my boyfriend who did not care about the spacesuit ab window. I hope that they, I hope that it was an inside joke. I really hope that they I really like, think it was. Like, okay, I do they, too. Yeah. So, it, I, this, it, it's just like this, like, that's an aesthetic visual thing. Never mind, like, never mind character interactions and, and how people think. Because, because it, it. It isn't just how people look. That's one of the things that you notice immediately because it's so like visceral and it's so it deviates so much from the actual world. The only people in the show who express anything even remotely like traditional Western masculinity are explicitly villains. Every other man in the show is so like soft <laughs> so they're I, all like so soft and always talking about their like feelings and stuff and i guess there's nothing wrong with that right it's right like, it's like like that's not it's not not everyone in the world is like that even especially not even every woman in the world is like that and especially not every man in the world is like oh friendship oh my feelings i'm gonna weep and like oh my girlfriend doesn't really like me and i feel self-conscious that i want to talk about it i you know? i think one of the things that steven universe did really well about this is by i mean the gems are all gendered as female yes i think by i i think by showing and like that faction as being the antagonist what they do is they provide they're like okay they're all we're all going to consider them essentially to be women and they run the gamut from soft to hard to aggressive to peaceful to um emotionally stunted to uh really open overly emotional you know by showing what they're doing is they're saying look at the variety within like womanhood yes that's really what we want right yes. we want like it's not the idea is not to erase femininity and it's not to like downplay masculinity. The point is to show that these people vary and that yes. that variance is uh, natural and it's like a, a desirable quality. That I feel like is the right way to do that. Um, Shira feels like it's like, well, we want to show one kind of variety. And yeah. and anything that kind of deviates from that, we're gonna shift into the villain column. Like it, it essentially reverses the rule book, which a lot of people would say is like, well, we should have shows that show how you know that works, because usually it's like effeminate gay men and that are villains, and you know, this is a little bit different. Except there's a very villainous character that is very clearly coded as very twinky, um, yeah. like anyway getting off track so this just feels like yes you could say that's okay because it's always been done before but when you have really good examples in the modern era of people tackling this aesthetic better it feels like a regression yeah so it's like okay so our two main 
boys that we have in this show who are not villains are Bo and Seahawk. Um, Seahawk is a very minor character, um, especially compared to Bo. So uh, Seahawk is silly and he's comic relief. Okay, so setting that aside, what is the difference in Seahawk's personality from Bo's personality? Uh, Seahawk is pretty brash. Yes. Whereas Bo is... For a warrior, Bo is way too indecisive. I know, right? God, I mean, but like the kind of the point I was making in terms of like their emotional lives, which is what is most important in the show and how they like, you know, like in terms of like their variance from traditional masculinity, you know, and their emotional lives, is there really that much difference between them? Not in, par- not in particular. Like, yeah. Seahawk doesn't really want to hurt people, and neither does Bo. Mm-hmm. Um, I, they're all concerned with kind of, like, getting along and having fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it, it's just, like, it, it's really, like... Dude, where's my buff, sensitive lumberjack? Ugh. Sorry. Know, right? Like it's like the most masculine person in the entire show is Huntara, actually. And yeah, they're like Huntara's a woman. Yeah, Huntara is the only person who has any kind of uh like defined muscles. Um so yeah, it it just I I get it, but I do think you know, physically there are some issues. But but yeah, emotionally and character interactions, like another part where this is like, God you could really get mired in the conversation with like, how much does subjective experience determine the world? And that is the show only subjective experience determines the world. Really? God, you can, the, the part that I fucking hate about this conversation is depending on how you word things, you can start to sound like right wing nut jobs. Yeah. And, and I, it, it makes like nuanced discourse very difficult, but it's be challenging. Yeah. But like, there, I feel like this is interesting to me because for, for decades, psychologists who do like clinical work, like those who practice sort of the Rogerian, like Carl Rogers humanistic approach we call person-centered therapy, have talked about the importance of discussing subjective experience. But the way that they talk about it is very different than the way that modern discourse talks about it. Um, the way that they talk about it is what people experience matters and how they, like, function. Big duh. But it was important at the time because a lot of people didn't believe that psychologically, you know, in the discipline. And he's like, no, we should be asking people what their thoughts are, what their subjective experiences have been, and mm-hmm. integrate that into our therapy. Duh. Yeah, people people are not, you know, like Skinner, the Skinner behaviorism model where people are just like stimulus boxes. But it's when stimulus and behavior comes out is not the whole story, you know? Exactly. But that is a very, like they did not, what they did not say is like one's subjective experience is good. And, and, and I guess I should not say good. One's subjective experience is not the metric by which individuals should do everything. Yes. So it's like, that's when you get into something like the concept of like standpoint epistemology, which like 
if you're not like extremely online or like like a philosophy person it's the concept that like epistemology is the theory of knowing it's like how do we know what we know and standpoint epistemology is the idea that like um you you have a particular authority on what is reality because of who you are and what your identity is and if you have a different identity then you do not have an ability to comment on what reality is for that person so like as a bi woman I have all authority to say what is really happening related to being a bi woman and anything that you observe as not a bi woman is not relevant and you should shut the fuck up basically um which like you hear that at first and you're like okay I understand where you're coming from and it seems like there could be there was some good intentions with that but it has for sometimes in some conversations for some people it can get a little out of hand um I mean, it it essential part of the problem is like it, it it shares same issues with solipsism yes like yes. it 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 just makes it makes it essentially throws up the hand at trying to determine knowledge hmm. in a way like yeah because because you're basically like knowledge is single like a singularity of you and that's yeah pretty and much like it. basically what you end up having in terms like let alone what it does to like your ability to discuss other things with other people you know and to like understand other people's points of view what it does to you as an individual if you get too hard into it is it basically says how i feel about what is happening is what reality is Reality is determined by how I am reacting to something in the moment. And it can get to the point where like it doesn't actually matter whether or not your reaction to it is in any way reasonable. The fact that you reacted that way me like is is a value judgment on whatever happens. You know, that that that's the logical negative endpoint of the idea of like, you know, intent doesn't matter. Only the result matters, you know, things like that. And so you get into that, like sometimes with with the with the writing of this show, where 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 what determines whether someone's action is morally right or not is how it made their friends feel when they first found out about it. All right, so I I want to provide one. Of, this is both a target of this conversation and shows some of the logical inconsistency of the show. Um, they're in a war for their the lives. A potential universe-ending war. Like, whether it be the, the second half or the first half, whether their home is threatened or whether their universe is threatened, the scale changes, but the fundamental conflict is the same. They are rebels fighting against huge odds, and those odds are, are people that are very clearly wrong and want to destroy you and erase your way of life. Period. So Shadow Weaver is a character in the show that is framed as being an enemy at first and then she switches sides. But her whole backstory is that she was cast out from the Ethereum Sorceress's Guild for wanting power. And that power was specifically in the context of, guys, Hordak is coming. Okay, he will crush us. We must do something 
And the response that she got from like the elder sorcerer was, we will simply endure as we always have. I yelled at the screen. <laughs> I fucking screamed at the TV. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so she, she, now this is the, this is why Shadow Weaver is one of the only four interesting characters on this show. Cause <laughs> she doesn't do it. Like she, she kind of uses a very powerful sorcerer in training to enact her goals. So she puts a kid in danger. That's yes. bad. Like, that's Don't bad. Don't put children in danger. That's bad. <laughs> but she's also not doing... Like, the show frames it as she's bad for wanting power. When yeah. clearly her reasons are stated, she she wants to do it. She also wants power personally. So again, she's a complicated character. But the the idea of what she's trying to do isn't absurd on its face. In fact, she seems to be the only person who takes the horde seriously. So she, you know, she she does it, she fails, she gets cast out. So she seeks power out of scorn from the the, you know, Hordak. The she's like, "Well, fine, if people aren't going to avert their end, I'm not going to die. I guess I'll go join them." Um Shadow Weaver periodically throughout the show, whether she's helping or hurting, is always framed as being bad for wanting power. And she, you know, she clearly abused some children, but maybe kind of wanted to do it for re it's weird. She it's weird. It's really emotionally abused children, but I don't know, like I don't know. That part's weird. Cat it's hard to know with Katra. Um yeah. she seemed to treat Adora okay. Um mm -hmm. but everybody gets mad whenever Shadow Weaver suggests fucking anything. Mm -hmm. Anything. And they're like, oh, we don't they their their reaction to her is oh I don't like you I think that what you're suggesting is wrong. Yeah. This is exactly you, you seem creepy to me, and therefore anything that you suggest has to be morally bad. This is exactly what Paige was talking about. Like their emotional response. They don't even interrogate it. They just let it be, and they use that. To decide military policy. Yeah. Well, and all, okay, so everything about Glimmer's behavior in the last, like, season and a half, basically. So, first of all, one of the things, that, like, like, Glimmer tries to, like, she becomes queen, her mom dies, and she becomes queen, and she tries to, you know, like, do things. Um, like, to help uh, save the world. And Adora and Bo get so fucking pissy about it. They are so pissy about it the whole time. And, like, the first thing that she does is learn from Shadow Weaver. And they have a huge problem with the fact that she would learn anything from Shadow Weaver. Because it's like, Adora's like, how could you ever even speak to Shadow Weaver after, like, knowing what she did to me as a child? And it's like, okay, hang on. She's a powerful sorceress. She has a ton of insider military experience. Yeah. Like, never mind that she almost died to come help you guys. 
Yeah, even if she is like legitimately a really bad person, which I think it makes it a little more complicated than that. Like, but even if she is legitimately a really bad person, that doesn't mean that she doesn't have like value. You know, and that you can't, like, learn things from her. That's just not how it, like, when people do bad things, we just don't, so we don't say, like, they have literally no use anymore. Let's just cast them away forever. Like, they go live in the hole. I guess we kind of do that a little bit with prison, but, you know. Uh, it, so they, that's kind of the problem. That, like, they... They let their immediate emotional reactions not only deter, like, reasoning follows emotion, not the other way around. And, and like, there are issues with strictly adhering to either one of those viewpoints, but they, they, they go hard. And Shadow Weaver offers, enough, like, it happens at the very end of the show. I swear to God, I was so mad because basically they're like, hey, Adora, you may have to die in order to save the universe. And everybody flips their fucking shit. Yeah. And it, it's like Shadow Weaver is suggesting that you, yes, she also still kind of wants that power. But you know what? She is suggesting that Adora undertake this potentially fatal undertaking because the alternative is complete and utter annihilation. Yeah, assuredly like either she maybe dies or literally everything in the entire universe ceases to exist so guys i mean like i know it would be really sad but like that's why we have the concept of like martyrdom <laughs> you know like i mean like the exact same thing that glimmer's mom did one season before like now it's 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 completely anathema that uh, that anyone would consider or suggest that someone do it and and everybody's like adora what do you want and i'm just like dude it does not fucking matter what adora wants yeah adora probably doesn't want to die but she'll like she's probably gonna die either way like you know what do, what do you like adora we you shouldn't have to do this we don't want you to do it how could you ever think about give like you always do this and it's just like, guys, I don't think you fucking understand anything about the universe or about the enemies that are bearing down on you. Like, you, you're like, we'll find another way. And I'm just like, that is pure, that is magical thinking on a religious level. That yeah. even if you, like, you, you don't have to pick any logical course of action with the information in front of you. If you believe hard enough in the power of friendship, your enemies won't grind you into fucking dust. Yeah, this is at a point where they're trying to make this decision. They have a matter of hours. Hours. Before the destruction of the universe. <laughs> and they're like, we'll find some other way. And like, no, there is no other way. That is the point that was being made. There is not another way. And... But it wasn't. There turned out in the end, there wasn't another way. That was the way. And, like, Adora managed to not die through the power of, like, really fucked up love with someone that you've known since you were a toddler. But, like, it, yeah, it, there wasn't another way. They didn't find another way. That was the way. So so Shadow Weaver was right all along. And yeah. she pays for it with her life. Yeah. She sacrifices herself and still like no one is like, oh, wow, like look at the sacrifice that Shadow Weaver made for us. Like maybe no, they're we just like good fucking riddance, bitch. Maybe we, maybe we should have listened to her the whole time. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It, it, it's just like it, 
the show needs to decide what it wants to do. Like when Steven yeah. Universe has these kind of conversations about emotions, the stakes and the situations are appropriate. Yes. Like, oh, I don't know how I felt about like Kevin kind of like being a creep. And like all their emotions and the the responses that they have, like it all makes sense. But when you like, and and honestly, when shit gets really tough in Steven Universe, like he, they kind of do this where everybody's like, "No, Steven, no, what are you doing?" Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think what they do is they don't back off of the fact that that still kind of needed to happen. Yeah, I mean, like, like, so it, it's the same thing with Glimmer, like, when I was talking about Adora and Bo being pissy, like, literally, they're just really pissed off at her for a long time because she's taking action. She's just, she's just doing things to take action related to the war, and they're so mad. They're, like, doing, doing anything, thing, being proactive is villainous. Like, I, it makes me feel like, like, the fact that, like, I under, like, the fact that I'm Adora and I know I grew up with some people in the Horde, it makes me feel kind of bad that they might get hurt even though they're trying to kill us. But also, you can't ever react to the fact that they try to kill us because, like, well, they're bad guys and that's what they do. We're good guys, so we don't act proactively. Acting proactively is only for bad guys. It's really bizarre. It's just so tangled in on itself. Yeah, I the the I guess the last thing I'll say about this is like I, I'm I'm reminiscing about Perfuma, who just refuses to use her full power in combat because she is quote unquote afraid of hurting people. Yes. Good God. I'm done. Like <sighs> There are many great stories that try to take this aesthetic and show like shit Nietzsche was saying too much compassion can lead to terrible things in the 1800s yes how are we still having this conversation about like the excesses of tenderness yeah insane insane like uh, and I know, like, everybody loves to invert things, but to some extent, like, those inversions are extreme, usually because they're meant to illustrate a point. They're, like, they're meant to show the absurdity of something. This show doesn't have the absurd part. It, like, it's like, no, we're truly going to fully believe in the power of friendship, no matter the odds, and things will turn out okay, because that's the way that things should be. And... It, it there's no punchline like you think there should be a punchline but there's not no they showed like glimmer took action Bo and adora were really pissy about it and they were mad at her and then the show's position is they were right to be pissy glimmer was wrong for taking action so i yeah i think this is interesting this is this is most prevalent with entrapta so we're kind of transitioning to other interesting characters entrapta is so cool and love her 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 voice actress did a great job she has a ton of depth because like on her face she actually seems like a trope like she she's presented as being 
very one trick pony, AKA she's a scientist. She loves technology, but interestingly, the way that she's instantiated in the story is very complicated because she, she does essentially chase knowledge rather than relationships at the beginning. And, and she, she has very poor understanding of human interaction. So she, she does things she's an interesting test case against this like tender queer explosion because she does things that she wants to do and she she never she doesn't want to hurt people but she does things that end up having negative consequences but even she's smart enough to back off when shit gets too real um but she's working for Hordak in part of the series and it's because she like she wants to learn shit. And yes, it is not good that she's working for Hordak. But everybody responds to her very poorly, even when she's on their side. When she does anything active. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she she asks questions. She she wants to do things. She she wants to take risks. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes that. Yeah, they have issues with it. And also, I think, I think that we've talked about this in past with other characters and other shows who present certain characteristics. She definitely seems like a character who is coded as autistic to me. Um, and I think they actually do a good job with that towards the end with her sort of final character development and with the group, particularly with Mermista, in that they have a huge problem with her because she is not showing her emotions in a way that they find acceptable, you know, um, and and they finally like push her to the point where she's like, yeah, of course, I have like a lot of feelings about this. I feel very sad. I feel very distressed. But like the way that I deal with that is by taking action. The way that I deal with that is by like retreating into like intellect, you know, And but that doesn't mean that like I don't know who these people are or that they're not my friends or that I don't feel emotion about it. See, this is this actually annoys me because she's the one that changes to meet them. Yeah. Like yeah. this this whole the whole series, they get annoyed with her. They they see her as a liability. That they, they're always like doing things to impinge upon her natural way of being. And I don't necessarily think that as a concept it's wrong for people to kind of meet each other or for people to change. But they don't change. She no, only they, she does. Oh like they, and and they they're like, "Oh, like they respond emotionally to all like to their like she doesn't fit their mold. It's weird because isn't this supposed to be an aesthetic where people are kind of allowed to exist in this mm-hmm. like free state, but these individuals are very like have very strict norms surrounding a lot of things and oh, yeah. her. It mm-hmm. and so it just feels like dudes, you guys didn't change at all for her. She had to do all of the emotional work of this. And that's shitty as hell. And and I don't know if they even like they wrapped it up in the last episode. Like it took until the series finale for people like Mermista to like try with her. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like I would argue, you could make the argument that Entrapta is actually the sort of like most, I don't know, like emotionally evolved or whatever of any of them because she has a very tender and complex friendship with Hordak. Um, and she like, like after Hordak gets like his mind erased and brought back into like the hive mind by Horde Prime or whatever, she actually creates like a turning point by like reminding Hordak of like who he is by their friendship because they were able to like have a friendship with one another that they had not really with anyone else, you know, and and that was all through her and her efforts to treat him like a person, you know, and and and, and in return he treated her like a person, you know, and 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 none of the none of the other characters were able to do that. Yeah, I really think, weirdly enough, she is the most open to new experiences. Yes, definitely. Everybody else, like, you'd think that they would be high in openness to experience, but I actually think all the characters are very close-minded. Oh, yeah, definitely. It comes back (laughs) to what I was... What I phrased as a a weird moral conservatism. It really it, along. it really is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one a, a nice counteraction to the interesting characters of uh, Shadow Weaver and Entrapta is Spinnerella. I have so much fucking beef with the writers about Spinnerella. I have so much beef with them. Okay. So she literally doesn't speak until season five. She appears on screen regularly and never says anything until season five. The only thing that she does is appear on screen being chubby and married to a girl. They're trying to get get points for having a chubby lesbian on the show, and she is completely empty. She is not a person. She is not a character. And then finally in season five, I'm like, wait, wait. It looks like they're about to give her something to do. She's been given a voice actor, and she says words. Oh, wait, she immediately gets turned into an empty vessel. She immediately, I think she's going to have something to do, and she's the first person who gets mind-controlled by Horde Prime and turns everyone into Horde Prime zombies, so she's still not a fucking person. They, they like, are trying to get credit, like, woke points for someone that's not a person, they never give her any character the whole time. Oh, God. I I truly love the emotion. It made me so mad. Mmm. Delicious. It, it just, I know, it made me furious every time Spinner <laughs> on screen. And they, like, showed her doing something and she didn't even make a sound. She didn't even, like, grunt or gasp. When she was doing magic, it just made me angrier. You know, I do. Okay, so I do think that she does have a couple of lines earlier than that, but they're all the most generic. Like, mm-hmm. I, I do think she, she'll say things like, well, I'm glad you're okay. Like, yeah. that's that's not, like, you don't, you don't have a character who's a princess of power. Yes. That only yeah. says, like, a, like, in the single digits, 
the most generic bullshit. Yes. Yes, it's ins- it's completely insane. And like even N- Natasha, her wife who's also like really gets the short shrift is still like actually has a character. I could be like she's a little bit sassy and like she's, she's butch. Old and a little bit cocky. She's a, she's slightly butch. She's like soft butch. Yeah, you know, and like uh um and then later um really what like when they finally give Spinnerella something to do it's actually giving Natasha something to do. Like Ooh. what happens to spit? Like it's like, it's almost, you could say because they make Natasha a little bit butch. It's almost like what, what these same exact people criticize ma- male authors for doing all the time, which is harming a woman to give a male character something to do, you know, um, like harming a woman, like harming a feminine, harming a femme to give a butch character development. <laughs> Um, so that's not great. I'm being, I'm being a little silly, but you know. No, but no, no. No, the point is still completely valid. Um, I, I think we have to give a shout out to Swiftwind, who is a horse, who is. I fucking love Swiftwind. Actually, I think Swiftwind is the most masculine of the main cast. You know what? I think you're right. And he's a fucking horse. He's way more of a character than Spinnerella. Like the horse. He, it's interesting because he's he's talkative, he's extroverted, he's also like a fighter, but he's also emotionally available. See, why yeah. couldn't we have more of that? More swift wins. He's also so funny. See, and that's I the thing. Him. He's the only legitimately funny male character. Yes, yes, because like, Bo is just so like bleh. and like you know like. Even Seahawk, he's supposed to be funny, but like he's a joke. Yeah, he's he he's the joke. Jokes, he's a joke. Yeah. yeah, he's the butt of the jokes. No one's laughing with him, you know. Whereas like Switchwind, like one of my favorite bits of the whole show is like Switchwind when he he can fly, and when you learn to fly, he loves to do loop de loops, right? And they're in like a spaceship, and they can't control it, and it starts like flipping around. And Swiftwind is like, "Loop de loops, how could you betray me?" <laughs> um, I think that Scorpia is interesting. Love Scorpia. Scorpia is great. Uh, she. I think that she's. She doesn't change a ton, but she's got range. She, she comes to understand that she has value as a person. It doesn't deserve to be treated this way. Right, right. I think that she's a really good character study and a person who's like too agreeable, but learns to fight for their own happiness. And then Madame Raz. Oh, Madame Raz. She's like a little fairy witch who lives in the woods and she lives in multiple times at once. Yes, it seems like she has dementia, but actually what it is is she lives in multiple times at once. So she was there when Mara, the original She-Ra, sacrificed herself to save Etheria, and she's now with Adora, and she keeps getting the times mixed up because she'll walk around, and she'll be holding stuff, and she'll be doing a task in one timeline, and then, like, not be able to do it in another timeline. And they phrase it as she's having trouble remembering things from the past, but she's definitely constantly experiencing temporal flux. Definitely, because it's like she absolutely, because it's like, 
It would be one thing because she calls Adora Mara all the time. Um, and you think it's that she can't remember, but then there's this whole episode where you realize, like, when she interacts with Mara, she calls her Adora. So what it is is she, yeah, she is, um, much like Kilgore Trout, she is unstuck in time. And she's helpful and affable and wise, but it, it really, she, she causes you to feel a lot of emotions because she very clearly cares about Mara. And she has to kind of, like, she has a Doctor Who moment. Like a Doctor Who River Song moment, for those of you who've watched that show, where she meets Mara and Mara doesn't know who she is, and she's like, Oh, this is oh, the first moment. this is the first time, isn't it? And it's I'm just been like such a long time since it was the first time. And I was like, Oh god. I'm just like, cool. fuck. I'm done. Cry. Tear immediately. Oh my god. Madame Raz, no. <laughs> so she's she yeah it's hard she's she's very interesting and people don't understand her but she does her best man madame raz teaches us to have greater respect for our elders yes she does doesn't she okay maybe your grandma doesn't have dementia maybe she is unstuck in time so the last okay the last thing that i want to talk about are the number of like now that we've investigated flawed internal politics emotions dictate reality um, is all the fucking plot holes in this fucking show. <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. Um, uh, you know, uh, there are some cool things that they use in this show. Like, there's a really interesting sci-fi concept that gets introduced, which is the hive mind, which is not uncommon in sci-fi. But the ship Horde Prime is on, they say it is only designed to be navigated by somebody connected to the hive mind, and that's fucking awesome. Yeah, that's neat. Like, that's neat. Like, that is a very... And that sounds cool. Like, it would be the way a hive mind would design a physical space so that only it could navigate it. What a great... Like, that's great. Um, but then... They, they, they drop the ball with so many other things that just, like, it, it's hard to forget them. So, number one, where the fuck did Adora come from? I don't know. I don't know. Some other dimension? Maybe also some other time? Unclear. Because they seem like they're going to tell you. And then at the very end, when they show Hordak clutching Adora in his arms you're just like wait what 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 is all of this nonsense happening right now it seems like you're gonna give me answers and then they don't give you a fucking answer did did she like did Hordak go and like steal her um Horde Prime says something about like the first ones and she's supposed to be a first one and they're his oldest enemy but their civilization has been crushed for like millennia so did like the first one send her back through like through like like forward through time and multiple dimensions to like fight Horde Prime here at the end of days it's very unclear I would really like an answer also he calls She-Ra his oldest enemy, and She-Ra literally has only existed on Etheria, which he has never been to. I thought he called the first ones his oldest enemy. It is unclear. Yeah. They, he refers to the old ones as being his enemies, but when he talks to Adora, he says, goodbye, my oldest enemy, as if yeah. he's talking to She-Ra. 
so like it doesn't mean she's like the last representative of her race in the universe and so that's they finally got him or whatever i don't know i don't know um that would make it clear wouldn't it and we just can't have clarity um they rescue some space pirate children who say they're gonna come fight for them and then they never show up again show up again there's like Um, a brief there's a brief mention that they're out elsewhere in the universe fomenting rebellion in other places but that's all okay mattel mattel asked them to put those characters in and like because mattel had final say on the character designs of all of the characters and they like requested changes to the star they used to be the star sisters now they're the star siblings they requested changes to make their color schemes more in line with their original holy holy shit so they got put in there because mattel wanted to sell more toys basically um what else happens so horde at like Horde Prime's motivations are completely un- unknowable. <laughs> like, he wants to conquer the universe. Like, he he set up is kind of a very stereotypical sci-fi trope, which is peace at all costs. Like, yeah. you, like he's um, like a driven, some people would call him a driven assimilator. He, mm-hmm. he is assimilating the universe to attain a perfect stasis. Mm-hmm. Um, but if then everyone is me. There is no conflict. Yeah. So, but then he starts wanting to blow up the universe. Like he talks, he starts randomly talking about cleansing things and and burning away imperfections. And you're like, wait. So you were, you kind of were talking about this one sci-fi approach, and now you're you're going over to the driven exterminator approach which is like the classic ai when there are no people left there will be peace yeah but it like literally gets to the point where they're like no it's not just that all life will be like there literally won't be a universe including you and that's what he wants to do which almost it like that almost hints at a trope that they used earlier in the series but um not quite it's like uh the tropes called put them all out of my misery and that's what Katra does when she turns on the portal. It's like, basically, it's like, I'm so miserable that I want to destroy the world, essentially. But he's not miserable. He's fine. So why does he want to literally cause the universe to cease to exist? Why? It doesn't make any sense. And he seems very concerned with survival because he's developed this very arc- like esoteric method of transferring his consciousness across lineages of clones. So yeah. why is he trying so hard to live forever if he's mm. just going to end it all? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Like, and, and the first ones designed Etheria as a super weapon to blow up the universe. Why? Why? Why would they? Or was the idea that, like, they just designed it as a super weapon and, oh, it was, like, way more powerful than we thought that it was going to be and it would just not just destroy our enemies but also the whole universe? Is that what the deal was? I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand. Like, they, they kind of make it sound at the beginning like it's designed to destroy a number of planets, so not the whole universe. But, yeah. but like planets, which would make more sense if they're fighting Hordak. But yeah, it's like the capabilities of the weapon swell inexplicably over time. Like when they first introduced the concept, it seems like it's like, oh, it's a Death Star. 
And then by the time it's the end, it's like, no, if it goes off, literally the universe will cease to exist. I'm like, that's not what you made this out to be initially. I thought we didn't want Hordak to have access to this weapon because he would use it to literally destroy planets, like make the planets go away. But apparently it makes the universe go away and he still, for some reason, wants to turn it on. Like an event- like, This doesn't follow. Like, like an eventually, he, he seems like he wants to destroy the universe because the people won't stop fighting. <laughs> I know, right? Like, he literally says everything. I will turn this car around. <laughs> everything was perfect until you rebels ruined everything. It's just like, dude, you own galaxies. Why? Why are you in person? Why don't you just glass the fucking planet? Yeah, it's been clear that you can, you know, like, why? Why you, any of this? It is shown. It, his fucking ships are shown cracking planets. <sighs> why? Why? Like, it's like he, he really wants this thing to destroy the universe and then people fight him and then he gets upset that people are putting up a fight. And then he's like, well, now I'm really going to destroy the universe. Just wanted to have it, but now, now I'm going to use it. Look what you made me do. Oh, and by the way, there's this other magic planet that I couldn't conquer. And, oh, boo-hoo. Mm -hmm. It makes me real sad. Yeah. And they never, like, they never, it seems like they're going to find something really cool on this other planet, and then they just don't. Katra just gets a pet. She gets a cool, invisible cat. Like, they were clearly building up to something and just, like, completely changed direction. Yeah, it's a mess. Like, I just don't, like, like I was saying with the, with the lore, the lore baton, like, with, with the other magic planet and with where Adora comes from and all of that. They just dropped it two thirds of the way to the finish line. They just dropped it on the ground. And I don't understand why. I don't understand what happened with the writing. And like every time they. There's just so much like, for example, it always bothered me that. Horde Hordak, like the original Hordak, like never seemed to have any soldiers around. Like, this giant mechanical horde has, like, 20 people in it. No, right? <laughs> like, and, and, I, and I suspect it's a budgetary issue where they couldn't draw, like, it's a body problem. But yeah. now I don't know. Like, did they legitimately just design the horde, the Fright Zone, this giant place, to be run by, like, 20 fucking people? I don't know, dude. Also, okay, I just want to, like, say in terms of, like, getting more woke points for more representation, they at the last minute have Scorpia say something about Kyle having a crush on Rogelio, and in the very last scene, there's a crowd scene, and Kyle and Rogelio are, like, standing there holding hands, and Ky they have adopted the Hordak baby. Kyle is wearing the Hordak baby on a carrier on his body. So, oh my god. The last thing in the last three minutes that I want to mention, because it, it just has to be, it, Katra and Adora. I hate it. I hate it. 
Catra and Adora, I said back in season one, like episode three, Catra and Adora just need to like fuck it out. And and that like was a comment on sexual tension. Like the the whole source of their conflict is like sexual tension. Except because yeah. the show can't have anything sexual in it, it's romantic tension. Yeah, um, yeah. Boo hoo! You left me, but we weren't an item. And now I'm gonna go. I, you asked me to come with you, and I said no, but I'm still mad. And so like my personality, like Catra is not a jilted lover. She has a personality disorder. Yeah. For real. They show her even as a tiny child, like beating people because she's sure that they hate her. You like them all more better than me. I I hit her because you wanted to play with somebody else and I know that you hate me and want to be best friends with her now. Like, that's not normal. That is a psychological disorder. It seems like an extreme version of uh, Borderline to me. It really does. It really, really does. So she, so Katra's like her self-concept is fragmented she she increasingly does things that she doesn't understand she's just a fucking mess and at the very end in the last season when she's alone with glimmer oh she she calms the fuck down and then everybody seems to like sort of gradually forgive her and then at the end she expresses her love for adora and everything's cool that's not how character development works yeah, it's like, you know, like I was saying, it's like they seem to have taken, they tried to do like a Zuko where it's like, oh, and then someone joins the good guys, but like they've been uh, through like abuse and a militaristic upbringing conditioned to be this like rage being. And so they have to sort of like slowly learn how to be a person. And it's like, okay, cool. Except for you forgot the whole part where every season leading up to that season was like moral complexity and that character questioning what they were doing and being like willing to um you know go against that upbringing uh and Katra never did any of that she just became increasingly erratic like I was fright like she was more like Azula honestly where I was like I'm concerned for her what is she doing I like think she needs maybe to like go away for a while and get some help you know nope but true love's kiss saves the world just also it's like it's fucking for it's like i like it's like the slumdog millionaire thing where it's like we've known each other since we were literally toddlers and that whole time since we were toddlers i've been in love with you it's always been you and i've always been in love with you and everything i've ever done in my entire life has been motivated by the fact i'm in love with you and i'm like I fucking hate that trope. It's like, that's insane. First of all, if you grew up with someone, like you've known someone since you were toddlers and you were raised together in that super close proximity, isn't that like, I don't know, like kind of incest? I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't know. Maybe. A lot of people who like grow up in close proximity like that feel like they're siblings and would feel weird about that. And then also it's like, I don't know. I didn't know what romantic love was when I was a child. I like I certainly didn't feel it intensely enough for it to motivate me for to do anything. The people that I thought I had romantic love for when I was like 14, now I'm like, wow, what a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this, I'll tell you what, this relationship is a fucking disaster waiting to yeah, happen. It's a mess. 
they're gonna literally destroy the world because like she's gonna turn into Shira and accidentally turn on the weapon and destroy the universe because she and Katra got into like a fight over like how Katra behaved at a dinner party because we saw the future and that's what's going on is that like also Boeing Glimmer at the last minute they're like we need a straight couple they told us we have to put a straight couple in here Bowen Glimmer even though there was never any fucking hint of that they were always just really good platonic friends all of a sudden they're a romantic couple well Glimmer was kind of jealous way back when but Bo clearly wasn't into her Mm-hmm. that way anyway also uh, Bo has dads randomly that's shoved uh, in there too and they're uh, very stereotypical his God. dads are so soft so soft like not a hint that they bone down no no they only adopt he's one of 10 they just adopted 10 kids is what they, they did they never had sex but we never see any of Bo's siblings no, yeah, it's just him. I don't understand it. I don't. So, they okay. just try and shove as much queer into it as possible. It really does feel like they're they won all kinds of awards for this from like Glad and shit, and it really feels like the point of the show was to win those awards. It really does. It okay. So here at the end, since we've despite all the ranting of me especially i did like this show i did i oh, it was really entertaining it I, really was i don't think i'll watch it again no um i i uh, my, my final view of this is like yeah it, it it's nobody is saying that it's necessarily bad television or that it's bad and clearly like a lot of people put a lot of work in into this and its release schedule was very fast um and it tried to do a lot and there are interesting things and there are interesting characters but it feels like how do i put it it's like you go to a play and you say wow the set design was amazing yeah yes is that really the point of the play though yeah yeah exactly like like i almost would say like almost my take on it is like well, I agree that representation matters, but I'm not sure that it matters that much. <laughs> like, like all the interesting stuff that they did with certain side characters and, and ideas, that was the, the, you know, the stage setting. The, the yeah. real star that they put on that everybody was there to see but wasn't as high quality was like the main story, the main characters, and the central theses of the show. Yeah. It just... Too, it's like a dude barfed pink over a Jackson Pollock. It's like almost, it's it's not even that they're bad, it's that they're not there. You know, it's that they're like incoherent. They like, they just fell apart there. They didn't give themselves the time or the space to, like you said, I think they put like commitment to a very specific ideological viewpoint. An ideological viewpoint that's honestly pretty hollow. It's not that robust. They put that ahead of actual writing and storytelling and it caused all of that stuff to just kind of fall apart and not and not be really, you know, I think this is beefy, right? Yeah, I think this is why when you ask authors, did you intend to write a book about blah, blah, blah? What they say is no, no, they they say I even if I have even if. okay, so, for example, there's a recent series I forget the name. It's really great. It's fantasy. It's about like colonialism, but it's not really about that. It's a magic. I really need to look up the author. I'm so bad. But if you ask people like, 
did you have these things in mind? What they'll probably say is, you know what? Yeah, I was kind of thinking about like the nature of relationships. But if you ask them, is that why you wrote that story? They're going to say no. Yeah. They're, they're going to say the story and the characters were there and all of this other stuff came second or you are seeing that in there and isn't that great? Like, this feels like cart before horse. Yes, they started absolutely. they started with what do we want people to lift from this rather than how do we tell a good Shira story? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think this it shows. I think it shows yeah. that that is a a huge risk. And mm-hmm. it just it I don't know if it it sometimes works, but I don't know if it works here. Yeah, I agree because it's like in Steven Universe they didn't like Rebecca Sugar didn't set out to tell a story about how like gay is good and you should like feel your emotions. Like she was telling a story about like family relationships and it because of who she is as a person and because of like the writing and the way that it bore out, it was very gay, you know, <laughs> like uh, where it feels more like the writers of this show set out to be like, all right, the message is gay is good. Um, and we're going to create a story around that tentpole. And I just don't think that that's a good way to write a story. Absolutely. So go watch it if you're interested in seeing the stuff. If not, that's okay. It's really sparkly and fun to look at, for sure. Swiftwind is fabulous. Love Swiftwind. Um, but yeah, I, I'm ready to move on from She-Ra. I don't Me think too. we need a reboot ever again. Yeah, I know. We've had enough She-Ra. That's plenty. thank you for your service um all right so um i've had a lot of fun hopefully we'll be back to a more regular release schedule Um, the holidays are over now that the holidays are over so um i've had fun y'all um, but yeah, sorry that I'm live because I made a gesture at Paige and we're like, okay, now you you finish it up. <laughs> he just like started dropping pencils all over the place, looked around in a panic, and then gestured at me. <laughs> so um, oh I've I've been Chris and I've been Paige, um, and this has been Animates. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It helps others find us. You can also find us on social media. We're Animates Podcast on Facebook and at Animates on Twitter. You can also send us an email. We are Animates at gmail.com, and there's the numeral 8 in there instead of the letters A-T. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>